it rained. <laughs> um, it was wonderful uh, to see things perk up again, including me. So welcome everyone uh, this morning. Last week we discussed the fear that sometimes arises when we discover that there is no separate self. This isn't an ordinary fear, as we said. It is, could be called an existential fear. It's, it's comparable really to the fear of death because it's the death of something, of someone that we thought we were, but discovered that we were not. So this sense of groundlessness can evoke fear in us. And we also discussed the, you might say, remedy for this fear, which is to become more human by moving to the edge of what we considered ourself. And that edge is the edge of all that isn't human, that is non-us, that is not what we think we are, but all that isn't us, that defines us, that vase and heads. So when we move to the edges of what we think of as a separate self, we actually come into contact with everything else, particularly with what we call the natural world, which is non-us, which is not human. I think I have, I'm very blessed in being able to live in the woods because when I walk out into the woods, I feel far more human than I do when I'm amidst other human beings, except the Sangha, of course. I kind of lose my sense of humanity when I can't connect with the edges that define me. So we talked about spending a lot more time with things and beings and contexts that are not human because we live in a highly humanly constructed world and it's, it's hard to get out of it. We're losing more and more of it actually and more and more human, human construction, human invasion of what is the natural world, dominating it, mastering it and controlling it. So it, that led me to consider Buddha nature because the word nature, the term nature is included in Buddha nature. And somehow all along, 
I've kind of been thinking about Buddha nature, regarding Buddha nature, as having to do with what defines us, what we think defines us as humans, namely our consciousness. So thinking that Buddha nature has something to do with our minds, with our self-consciousness that distinguishes us. But the more I began considering this and sitting with this, I wondered whether Buddha nature has more to do with nature, with the natural world, with our biological nature, with our bodies, than it has to do with our minds, with our intellects, with our self-consciousness. So my question to myself was, in what sense is Buddha nature a matter of our bodies? To what degree is our sitting practice a body practice? A body practice, perhaps even more than a mental consciousness practice. And thus, I've become a little bit uneasy with this very popular term called mindfulness. And wondering whether mindfulness leads us down uh, a non-helpful path because it seems as if we have to become mindful, we have to use our minds to, to really experience life. And it has come to mean a continual tracking of every moment it's like being in the present moment we have to be in the present moment and we have to be mindful of every moment well what does that amount to often it amounts to my being aware of oh now i'm sitting in front of a screen now i'm talking now i'm raising my hand now I'm feeling an itch behind my ear. Now I'm looking at Richard. This is often what mindfulness becomes, to be, to be tracking every moment of what you're doing. It's like almost like chasing a leaf on a stream. <laughs> uh, you're really, when I say I'm, I'm aware that I'm looking at a screen, I'm mindful of this. My mind is aware of it. In a way, I'm not really looking at the screen. What I'm looking at is my consciousness. I'm not absorbed in what I'm doing. I'm much more attentive to being aware of what I'm doing. Okay? It's, just, it's a bit subtle. But it's worth examining 
this idea of being in the present moment and being mindful. In a way, we can never be in the present moment. Because the present moment is constantly slipping away. It's constantly slipping away. And we can drive ourselves crazy in trying to catch that, that moment and be, be, have our awareness sticking to it at every moment. That's crazy making. And that's why some people have such a difficult time being in the present moment because it's almost impossible to be in the present moment. We have to keep jumping, jumping into something that keeps dissolving under, underneath us. I mean, I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors, but hopefully you'll get something. So I've begun to be, have a fondness for the term presence. To be, this is coming from you not the moment, not time, but coming that you are present to the flow of life, present to, to the flow of experience. So this is your, your contribution, you might say, to life as it is unfolding. You're present to it you meet it. You're not trying to grasp it. You're not developing a super self-consciousness in which you're chasing every moment. And I offer that as a, as something to consider. When we sit, shikantaza, I love shikantaza. <laughs> because it is just sitting. There's no technique. There's no effort um, in any strained sense of trying to get something, to get somewhere, to be in the present moment. It's simply being available to what arises whenever it arises. So it's just sitting, nothing added, not even self-consciousness. So it's not about I'm sitting and I'm aware that I'm sitting. That awareness is extra. The sitting is complete. And awareness is, if, you're, if you actually are just sitting, the awareness is, as they say these days, baked in. It's baked in. You don't have to try. <laughs> you don't have to say, oh, now I'm sitting, and now I'm breathing, and now I'm, I'm on number three, and now I'm on number 10, and now I'm exhaling. Awareness is always there if we allow it to be. If we just allow it to be part of everything 
that we do. Nothing extra, no self-consciousness, no even deliberate, uh, deliberate, deliberate consciousness, just open availability. And this has to do with the body. In fact, Coben, when um, in later in the later years of his teaching, when students would ask him questions, most often he would simply get up and adjust their posture as a response, or he touched them on their heads or shake them. He would respond directly, not intellectually, but directly with the body. When we sit, we are putting our bodies on the cushion. Um, what is the expression? Uh, there are lots of expressions like, like putting your body on the line, right? If you're committed to something, put your body on the line, show up, walk your talk, actually engage your body. Even biblically, it is said, by their works, by their works, you shall know them. By their works, you shall know them, not by their speech, but by their presence in the world, by how they behave. So many people have a hard time just sitting. And I suspect part of it has to do with the fact that we have abandoned our bodies. That less and less do we inhabit our bodies fully. That most of our lives take place from here, from the eyebrows up. We live in a kind of abstraction. Now, there there is a tremendous focus on the body in our culture, in our society. That doesn't mean we live in our bodies. It means that we are paying attention to them. You know, we, we, um, we work out to develop our bodies. We dress them in fashionable clothing. We, you know, we're concerned about how we look. We have plastic surgery to correct <laughs> things that we don't like about our bodies. And even in images of our bodies online, you know, we can Photoshop them, we can change them, we can brighten them, we can darken them, we can add things, subtract things. We're very, you know, we run, we, we do all sorts of things to 
make a good presentation of our bodies. That has a lot to do with appearance, with the surface of our bodies. But do we inhabit our bodies? Do we really feel them, feel all the senses? The first of the five skandhas form, which has to do with our physical being. To what extent are our senses developed? Our sight is highly developed. Our hearing, yes. Our taste, our touch, our smell. To what extent do we, do we live in all of our senses, our sense doors? Um, there is a wonderful famous line from James Joyce's Dubliners about a Mr. Duffy. And Joyce says, Mr. Duffy lives a short distance from his body. <laughs> and I'm thinking of um, people I go out to walk with, to hike with, and maybe I'm, some of you I'm sure are in this category but we, everyone has a Fitbit, right? And so walking has become, we're, we're definitely interested in walking, but is it walking or is it our steps? <laughs> are, we, are, we, are we walking or are we just counting steps? <laughs> So that's, I think, a sense in which we're living a short distance from our bodies. We're there, but we're, but we're regarding them as objects or as means or as fashion plates or as, you know, we're dressing them up. <laughs> we're dressing our bodies up and we're putting them through routines and so that's living a short distance from your body. Whereas sitting requires you to be fully there in your body. Just that. So you have a fighting chance of being in your body when you're walking, when you're eating, when you're making love, when you're hugging someone, and in Thich Nhat Hanh has this wonderful hugging meditation, which has to do with being in your body. We'll do that sometime. I mean, I've, we've done that in the Sangha, but it's, it's a wonderful, we'll talk about that at some point. No one can sit for you. Your body has to do it. And you might ask yourself, what, what things in my life, what activities, what ways of being make my body absolutely essential? What cannot, what, uh, what cannot I do? I'm not sure that's grammatically correct, but what cannot I do virtually? 
what must I do with my body, the fullness of my, my presence? Yeah, I can have dokusan with, with you on Zoom, but I can't feel your presence, your full body presence on Zoom. There are lots of things that you can do on Zoom. You can't hug someone on Zoom. You can't touch them. And to what extent is this significant in our lives? In fact, we often say that um, people ask, you know, what is, what is a good sitting? It's not about the fact that you have experienced this ecstatic, as Coben said, this ecstatic feeling. A good sitting is when you're still on the cushion when the bell rings. You've placed yourself. You've held your seat. You've been fully there, mind, body, and spirit. When I was in Japan, I learned a lot about our care and connection with the body. Not only having that experience in the common bathtub, which was a highly physical experience. But in the gardens and in, uh, in the announcement for today's sitting, I included an image of a tree that had a bamboo, I call it a bamboo band-aid. Uh, this tree was ancient and it was hollowed out. And I suspect that if, if it appeared in an American garden, it would have been cut down because it was old, <laughs> it was decrepit, and it was falling over. And it had a big portion of rot in the middle, but no. There was a reverence for that body, for that ancient body. And they constructed a series of bamboo um, slices to protect that tree and give it as much life as, it, as they could. And similarly, they have a, um, a process that they call yukitsuri, which is every November, they make these uh, snow suspenders. You can look this up online, where they, um, sometimes there are 800 ropes <clears throat> for one tree to try to hold it 
healthy under the, the snowpack. Try to keep it, to keep it strong so that it doesn't break. In another instance, uh, when you have a T-bowl that you may break or crack, there is a process called kinsuri, which involves filling that crack, those cracks with gold. But don't throw it away. <laughs> which would be my first inclination. Oh my God. In fact, I have a broken tea bowl sitting on my shelf, <laughs> hoping somebody knows how to do uh, kintsugi, some potter. Typically, I would have thrown it away. But there's something to be revered about a body, a physical thing particularly a work of art, something of beauty. And that bowl, which has been repaired with gold, is more valuable than if it were not. So these are examples of ways to take care of the sacredness of the body. We might talk at some further point about the different bodies of the Buddha. The Buddha has three, three different bodies, three different manifestations. <clears throat> but for today, I just want to focus our attention on the significance of our bodies and how we ought to consider our true practice as one of full presence, which involves being bodily there. And I know that some of you, um, some of you ride bicycles and that the way that has been described, like Joanna, you're not willing to give up your bicycle ride, uh, even for book study, <laughs> uh, because there, I, I suspect there's something sacred about that. There's something sacred about the body engaged. And I suspect that each of you have, maybe it be yoga, uh, uh, gardening, it's a, a bodily connection with the earth, uh, even walking, hiking, uh, Fitbit or no Fitbit. I know for me, it's dancing. Um, so for me, that was the refuge from being an academic. <laughs> I just needed to dance and to get back into my body. So there's, I, I, I'd like us to consider the, the dimension of our practice 
which is physical, biological, natural. So do more dancing, do more bike riding, do more gardening, do more hugging. <laughs>